And we're live. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners internationally and in space. Uh, as are, well. we, have, we, have, we have community partners in space? I'm certain there's at least one. All right, fair enough. Uh, and uh, as well as the podcast on our website. You're listening to the voice of Saren Kaster, your host for The Green Majority. Stefan Hostetter is also here in the studio and uh, will likely be joined by other voices uh, very shortly. Um, but for the time being, uh, Stefan, uh, I'm going to let you introduce the first news story. But I wanted to give, as I like to do at the beginning of the show, the uh, audience, the listeners, some sense of the trajectory of the mm. show. Yes. So you have warned me and I will now warn the audience. Uh, that we're going to start low, but we're aiming up from there. Yeah, we're starting. That's, we're, the, that's we're, the idea. The, yeah, the middle ground is going to be is, is not much higher than the low we're starting, but the end the end is the is right. when the when the positive news starts. So if yeah. you're thinking like, man, I can't take anything much worse than this. Don't worry, we've done that intentionally. We're starting at the bottom here. Yeah, we're starting from okay. the bottom. And uh, I'd like to also wait, welcome Dave to the studio here. Uh, hello, Dave. hello. Uh, but uh, so, I'm sorry, we were interrupting you, Stefan. Uh, what is the bottom this week? Yeah, so the, so the bottom, as as often uh, is the case, is a variety of of of, of it's the weather report you know like i feel like the weather oh, the report weather. that doesn't sound so how could that how bad that got exactly that yeah i feel like often the most the many of the stories that are the sort of end up be the most the most devastating uh or at least the most concerning uh, are is just is just doing the weather. I, I, that's something that is definitely something that boomers would never have predicted. That like 50 years ago, the scariest part of any news thing would be what the weather is. Uh, but it's it's the it's the current reality now. Uh, so throwing over to Dave to talk us a little about a little about weather. A little I guess the glaciers is a little is not exactly weather, but it's weather related. More the climate weather related. report keeps on tossing and turning, predicting and warning and warning and warning of. Should I continue? No, no you, can just, uh, you can just you can just start so, the stories. Uh, yeah. Canada's highest Arctic islands, Stefan, are losing a lot of glacier cover, and many glaciers are set to melt entirely. The glaciers recently studied, uh, the, re- the, le- the glaciers that were recently studied shrank by over 1,700 square kilometers over the past 16 years, while they had only lost around 900 square kilometers in the previous 40 years. None of the glaciers are growing, and many are turning into floating collections of icebergs rather than vast sheets of thick ice. Canada's Arctic has been warming at one of the fastest paces on Earth, rising 3.6 degrees Celsius from 1948 to 2016, with a sudden rise beginning in the mid-1990s. Yeah, so this is obviously a little bit of, it's a, it's a in part, uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about how the Arctic Ocean is becoming the Atlantic Ocean, uh, or, or about how the compositions of the oceans are changing. And and this is, this is a brief thought. One of the major things to follow here is that this is an example of one of the things that is uh, that causes these feedback loops, because as uh, as glaciers uh, as glacier cover decreases, and this is like this is one of the things that sounds so, I guess like non complicated uh, that it just you can't, it's hard I think to understand to, to like for your brain to think it's a real true thing, uh, but one of the facts about these large glaciers is that they are that they are white and white repels. Uh, heat better than better than better than dark colors, and so actually, as these glaciers decrease in size, you're actually the Earth actually absorbs more and more heat because they're not being the rays are not being bounced back into this in, in the sky. Something uh, this is a perfect day for our listeners to test for themselves if they're feeling uh, physics skeptical of physics today. Yeah. Go uh, go outside with a white shirt and then go inside and change your shirt. It's yeah, not, uh, it's not.
about, as they say, rocket science. Yeah, exactly. Or just put <laughs> two things on the ground, one that's white, one that's black, yeah. and then touch them in an hour and see which one's hotter. Right. And it's, it, is, it is a thing. And what the problem with this, of course, is that that means despite it, – it's another thing that is adding to the increase of temperature uh, that is sort of caused by the increase of temperature. Uh, and so, you know, we're looking at – we're quickly becoming, we might have, you know, they're talking about sometimes you'll have summer free of ice that we're upcoming soon and, and it's only headed, you know, worse than there. And also it's like, it's warming the fastest anywhere else. So things to keep an eye on. Glaciers, not doing so great. Uh, how is Sweden doing? Well, I am sweating like an acidic fish, Stefan, because upwards of 11 wildfires are burning through European regions with the Arctic, within the Arctic Circle during this unusually hot and dry summer. Sweden is asking for emergency help to fight the fires which have caused evacuations of four communities so far, forced tens of thousands of people to remain indoors with windows closed so as not to inhale too much smoke, and caused some rail services to halt. Fires are also raging through Russia, Finland, and Norway, while in western Sweden, firefighters have had to stop battling flames near an artillery range which could start exploding in the heat. 2018 is shaping up to be excessive, a local resident reported. Huge areas of forest and farmland were also lost last year in Europe, as 2017 was the worst year for wildfires in the continent's history. More fires in northern regions are also occurring in Canada, Siberia, Alaska, and Greenland, caused by barbecues and cigarettes, but also lightning strikes, which are becoming more numerous as Earth's temperature increases. The northern hemisphere as a whole is catching fire, with larger and more wildfires spreading across the upper part of the globe. More and more areas are becoming susceptible to such fires as traditionally wet and cool forested areas and moorland, which have historically stored a lot of carbon, are now drying up. Just to double check, you said the, there are wildfires in the Arctic Circle. Yeah. That seems normal. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, I like how understated the, the one person they interviewed for this story was and just went with excessive. The Swedish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like, it, you know, yes, there are, you know, there are wildfires across, uh, across the, uh, the landscape, but I just find that a little excessive. It's excessive. Um, but yeah, so again, this, is, this should be – what's interesting about this is that it's sort of showing the, the widespread nature of these wildfires, you know, that – and obviously, these types of these types of things have more get more cover uh, when you're when they're happening, say in California. Uh, and although California is a place that historically had wildfires that are just getting worse, mm -hmm. uh, the Arctic Circle less common a place for wildfires. Mm -hmm. uh, not, of course, that there was not there were not none before. I'm not going out and you know pretending that like this is the first time there's ever been a fire in the Arctic Circle. But it's certainly not the kind of place that was historically it was it was expected. This is another example of the feedback loop you mentioned because carbon sinks such as forests. Uh, are burning up, releasing more carbon that was otherwise stored. And depleting the future ability to absorb more. Right? Yeah. So yeah, there, mm -hmm. de there, mm -hmm. there's some double counting there that's often not done mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that when you're doing a calculation, you might calculate the, uh, uh, you know, often they'll say, well, we're going to, you know, we're releasing this much carbon, but, you know, often those calculations, uh, and it's not for dishonesty, it's just like, this is the complication of talking about these things. They'll say, well, we're going to, you know, this much uh, CO2 will be released in the oxygen when we lose this forest. There's the other number, which is that also now we don't have the forest to absorb an equivalent amount over the equivalent period of time in the future. And so often a lot of these numbers, sort of real world numbers, uh, you can double them frequently. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated fact. Like it's, it's, it's one of these things in which 
it was hard for us 50 years, like even as we get better at understanding things, the world is getting less understandable. Uh, and so it certainly is a difficulty factor of how much carbon, yeah, like when you think about say human carbon reduction is, is still separate from sort of all the other types of carbon, ways that was carbon was sequestered that was sort of being lost. And so we can keep tracking sort of what the atmospheric carbon is and understand what that number is. But how much we are in control of that carbon is sort of as, in, you know, climate scientists have been saying for quite some time, it, we're losing that ability, right? Slowly but surely, as these extreme weather ne networks get worse and worse and worse, we're losing the ability to control how much of the how much what, how much carbon or or you know, in the case of say permafrost melting uh, methane is in the atmosphere. And so it's a it's a difficult thing to be heading towards because even as we're getting better at maybe understanding what's going on, it's getting harder to do that. And so our actual overarching ability to maintain and and you know maybe reverse this warming is is getting more difficult by the second. Mm. Uh, but we're, uh, but good news, everyone. There's more bad news. Uh, so what's going on with the Baltic Sea? So uh, a new study shows how agriculture and urban waste have brought the Baltic Sea's oxygen levels to a 1,500-year low. As algae consume the influx of nutrients and bacteria use up the oxygen stores, a process that is creating ocean dead zones around the world. While oxygen levels have risen and fallen over the, his over the history of the Baltic Sea, oxygen depletion has increased dramatically in the past 100 years. The authors of the study told The Guardian, quote, our evidence of deoxygenation at the beginning of the 20th century suggests that the human influence was felt earlier. In other words, that the system is more sensitive than we thought previously. Countries bordering the Baltic Sea have been implementing mitigation strategies for over a decade, but no recovery has yet been reported, and climate change may be obstructing that process. A professor of marine conservation at the University of York said, quote, one troubling finding is that recent efforts to reduce pollution have not yet led to recovery. The Baltic Sea is stuck in a vicious cycle in which low oxygen at the, <clears throat> in which low oxygen at the seabed releases nutrients trapped in bottom sediments to fuel yet more plankton boom and bust that causes the dead zones to get bigger. Uh, as an aside, they said reducing meat consumption is the best way an individual can help mitigate the situation. All right. There's a, so shout out to the to our vegetarian and vegan friends. Mm -hmm. uh, Gotta love the vegetarian and vegan friends. Yeah. Mm. The uh, but and again, so this is the God. This is this is the kind of thing that makes all of this so complicated, right? Because this is not even this is something that was caused by pollution. Uh, but but again, the pollution that is being that is is a being worsened by climate change, or or at least the ability to sort of regrow this these these auction things. Um, or to increase the oxygen levels is difficult. But then also that means that, you know, what's creating that oxygen normally is plants that are sequestering carbon. You know, the, the fact that we're losing these type of dead zones that are losing the ability to sequester carbon is consistently, like, is consistently hampering, hampering that problem. And so it's just like every one of these stories I feel like has this sort of like, this is a bad thing, but also the corollary bad thing is it also makes climate change worse. Right. Uh, a, a, a corollary might be... Um, you know, if someone's acting extremely erratically, uh, perhaps being sick, you might uh, 
think that, you know, perhaps they'd had too much to drink. But once, uh, you know, their drinking is being limited because their liver is shutting down, that's like an indication that the problem has gone to like a, a, a next tier of seriousness, right? Yeah. And, you're, and you're causing now a different category of damage. You're now having a different category of conversation. Uh, and this is what we're talking about. When, you know, stress on the system is like sort of a first order problem. When there's apparent stress and failure in the damage management system, mm. that's a second tier. Like that's a third tier is system collapse, right? right? When th those are the three sort of <laughs> stages, right? You know, your body's being infected by a disease, your, your immune system compensates for it. When your immune system itself starts failing, step three is death. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's the thing, right? Is that here you end up you end up in the place that that these dead zones are examples of sort of those failures to to create a, a, to it's it's examples of how we've pushed a system too far to to give itself its natural ability to recover. You know, it it's, it, it gets to a place where you're looking at you know how are we supposed to respond in these in these ways, and and then and then what are we supposed to do about it, right? Like, because it's it's this thing about these problems are not necessarily going to get easier uh, to deal with in any way or form. Uh, it's good that we're sort of paying attention uh, and that people are now trying to reverse these, these impacts. But the, the fact that we are still not sort of addressing the underlying problem is, is an ongoing concern. And and again, we're back to we're talking about we're back to talking about uh, about uh, about these weird like types of like every one of these these like unexpected blooms of things or dead you know these dead zones and stuff like that are these these examples of like areas of the world that are sort of losing what they losing entirely what they used to be uh, is 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 an indication that you know, each one we don't know which one of these things might be the thing that really ticks off something much much larger and so. Let's hope. Let's all let's all hope for the Baltic Sea and eat a little less meat in their honor. Uh, one last story before we go to break. Uh, I think from the headline, it's not good news either. Dave, uh, thank you, Stefan. <clears throat> Looking at uh, historical instances of global warming of zero point five to two degrees higher than pre-industrial levels, researchers have found that regional temperatures were much hotter and sea level rise was much higher than current models predict. This could mean that even if we are able to contain warming to 2 degrees Celsius as per the Paris Agreement, whole countries in the Pacific and many coastal cities could still find themselves underwater. Researchers have concluded that current models underestimate the long-term effects of 2 degrees of global warming in general. During the eras studied from 5,000 to 1,600,000 to 3 million years ago, the climate was also changing at a much slower pace than it is today. One of the study's authors said, quote, Observations of past warming periods suggest that a number of amplifying mechanisms, which are poorly represented in climate models, increase long-term warming beyond climate model projections. This suggests the carbon budget to avoid 2 degrees Celsius of global warming may be far smaller than estimated, leaving very little margin for error to meet the Paris targets. Well, that's good news because, you know, we're all right on target for that, for those Paris agreements. You know, that's, that's, that's all I've been reading about is how mm -hmm. so much has been done and how much of the entire uh, world has signed on and not left the Paris agreement and how we've really come to a rational conversation about climate change. That's so I think that one's, uh, I think we are okay there. Right. They actually, uh, 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 I hear Trump came out with a really excellent strategy so that every country on earth can meet their climate targets every year. It's actually mm. a really bold strategy. What you do is you just change the target year to the current year. Ah, <laughs> right. And yeah. then bam. And then you're always winning by yeah. definition. Yeah, if so I, I will reduce it by QED, <laughs> you might say. Yeah, our target is uh, to hit 2020 levels Where by 2020. Where are we? That's the target. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. Um, no, but seriously, this is, 
this is this is an example of like I think this is what's interesting about this is it's a frustrating study uh, mainly because it's you know not great news but it's 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 difficult because it sort of highlights the fact that when five ten fifteen years ago climate scientists were were very clear about the fact that their current studies you know were you know these are estimates these are these are these are attempts to be as close as possible, but they should not be taken as exact, you know. And then that whole thing was used to say that it was that we were un, that we are overselling the dangers of climate change, and and then lo and behold, the, the the way that averages work isn't that it's you know likely to be one way like that it's, you're always going to be overselling. It's that it could either be a little bit worse or a li- or, or a little bit better than you imagine. And so it shouldn't it's in no way surprising to people who've been following this that perhaps some of our you know some of our estimations were not were not fully accurate or were were, were underselling the scope of the problem uh, because that's sort of how these averages work. You know, you 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 do a whole bunch of ways you might mod- climate modeling, you have a whole bunch of examples of how you, you do it and you sort of look for what might make make the most sense. And the IPCC itself said consistently that their reports were Relatively, uh, they they undersold the concern about climate change consistently. They sort of always went with the lowest or the near the lower end of concern. Um, and so this kind of news of like, hey, just so you know, we the Paris Agreement is is not just sort of where we need to hit. It's what we really need to hit, and we should be scared otherwise. Especially if you live in I don't know places like Florida, uh, which is just going to be underwater. Um, you mean uh, Atlantis? Yes, exactly. Formerly known as Florida. Um, and, and these play places like in coastal cities and, you know, the places that are, and like, again, this is, this is this partial reason why you're gonna see a ton of action within the Pacific because of how much of, of, uh, like, this is like entire island nations that are at stake. Um, and, and so this is why Paris matters. You know, the Paris Agreements wasn't sort of a, let's try to get there for this time because that would be nice. It really was a, yeah. it's, this isn't global hunger people. We don't, we're on a time limit here. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, exactly. Which is also kind of ridiculous. But like, in case the, anyone thinks that was a hideous comment, it no, was sarcasm. Yes. The, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but that's the point, right? The point is that like, there is, there is not this is a hard stop it's not something you can't negotiate with the weather you can't come to the weather and be like i don't know hey, i think trump's the best negotiator ever i'm pretty sure he could get a deal right well yeah. you know they go I, way back i i have heard that russia controls the weather and he there doesn't go. have good relations with russia so right. i feel like we can we can make this work well and uh, alex jones is all over that weather manipulation stuff and right. him and trump are tight so problem yeah. solved <laughs> although even what's, what's, what's ironic about that is even if we were able to control the weather that still would not solve the actual problem uh, I wonder if you could clear up this I have a technical issue yeah. with, this, mm. with this study which I found a little bit confusing so they were studying past instances of warming from 0.5 to 2 degrees higher than pre-industrial levels mm-hmm. but the study suggests that temperatures during that that caused the temperatures to be much higher than they predicted and that long-term warming from that increase was higher than predicted implying that uh, 2 degrees means if, if we hold it to 2 degrees in our current time frame of, of modeling that that actual global warming will be higher than two degrees or are they simply saying that the volatility around that two degrees is unpredictable and could trigger other loops right. which would cause I- unpredictable issues which, right 
my my understanding is that they're talking about the volatility of that number. Uh, and and I actually uh, use the uh, Green Majority Twitter account to put out a extremely uh, intentionally, in my opinion, misleading article that was posted, I believe, in the Global Mail. I'm not sure. Mm. Might have been a financial post, but it was uh, someone who has absolutely no expertise whatsoever in the environment or anything to do with climate change, uh, but is like an economist or something, as usual, mm. uh, writing an article on how stupid climate science is. Uh, and that was their point. They were saying, mm. hey, look, there's this new study. It may in fact been the same study. Uh, there was this new study. You can go in the, I don't tw tweet very often. We don't tweet very often aside from the show. So it shouldn't be hard to find if you want to look in the Green Majority Twitter feed. Uh, Canadian article written recently talking about a article uh, saying that, you know, the variability on what we can expect from a specific amount of warming, uh, degree warming uh, is even more variable than we thought. And his mm. thing was, aha, see, they're even less sure than they thought they were. See, this is no problem. <laughs> in Not fact, it just means their estimates are even more conservative than we thought. Well, exactly. And what it means is that, yeah, like it could only be two degrees or two degrees could mean 15 degrees. And mm -hmm. because his, this person's, this author's interpretation was, we used to think two degrees meant two degrees, but now two degrees could mean 15 degrees. Therefore, you're less sure. Therefore, we should be less concerned. Mm -hmm. And, and I would love for you to think at the audience mm -hmm. that I'm being dramatic and embellishing this and making it sound stupider than it really is. Read the article, <laughs> go read the article. That's literally what he's saying. Yeah. And, and I, this I, is posted in a serious newspaper. Oh yeah. Right. With, as if he's a serious person with serious things to to say about science uh, as an economist who's a lifelong conservative who doesn't know anything. Um, and that's, I called it out on the show a few weeks ago. I said, shame, shame on this paper for publishing this. You're propping this person up as if they have any worthwhile comments on science. Uh, and the person there, like everyone's entitled to their opinion. If that guy is a show, fine. If he's, if he believes that fine, but it is the newspaper who is absolutely responsible for publishing factually untrue information from someone who has absolutely no accreditation to be making comments on that subject. Absolutely. They should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, I if not worse, mm. uh, than just shame, mm -hmm. uh, publicly shamed, uh, regardless of how you feel about any issue to knowingly put uh, at best misleading information uh, uh, out in the public realm, especially during this period of uh, extreme uh, skepticism around mainstream media, uh, I think is extremely dangerous to our democracy, not just in the climate change sense, but in the larger sense. So uh, sorry for taking a little diatribe there, but uh, it's really sickening uh, to see people make a buck off giving other people who are espousing uninformed and dangerous views a platform to make a dollar um, just makes me really sick. And I, I, I wouldn't, I'd have to read the, 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 the study because it's possible. It is totally possible that they meant that actually 2.5 to two would lead to future warming. Um, in that it, it could be that they saw that basically when you hit, when you hit 0.5 to two, that over the next hundred, 200 years, you actually did see further increase of, of, of warming. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and so that is totally possible to what actually is, is, is being, is being said here. It would, the implication there would be that even if we manage to get our carbon emissions done or reduced to, 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 to zero to, or to the amount we had pre-industrial levels, um, that still might not be enough to prevent further warming in the future. Uh, and so you'd have to start at that point, you'd be like, okay, well then what are we doing to, to, to look at that? And because it is true that, you know, if you hit two, even people at two degrees warming, they're not certain whether or not that would, how that would directly impact things like, uh, like permafrost, you know, they, they say roughly around two, but you know, these, these numbers are like this, you already because see right now. It's a system. If you put, if, if you put a liter of ice cubes into a bathtub, how much does the water raise? Well, it depends how long you wait. 
Right. Well, when also right? In- so when you put a bunch of carbon into the atmosphere and we get two degrees warming, it doesn't, okay, now the thing is set. No, then it's a chemistry thing. So then it goes through, then some ice melts. Then So like there is no such thing. So the uncertainty is how much, but there is zero uncertainty. There is absolute positive certainty that a certain amount of carbon dioxide in the uh, heating and warming will lead to more warming. The question is how much. It could be infinitesimal. It could also end life on Earth. <laughs> But there, there is absolute certainty that there, that warming leads to more warming. That is not a scientific question. And the, then the last thing I'll say before throwing to the, to throwing to the music break is running over time a little bit is that the the major major thing here, of course, is to also remember that the regionality of heating. That if we keep global temperatures to two degrees, we're probably seeing you know again even right now we're seeing that the Arctic Ocean, the Arctic the Arctic is is heating much much quicker. Uh, and so, and so that the, all those types of things play into this. Uh, and so I have to read the article further to know exactly which one of those two things, but both are plausible. Uh, well, now with the after we've done the super depressing weather report, uh, let's go to some music. What do we got, Megan? And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Doing my best Amy Goodman impression here right now, speaking very quickly. Uh, <laughs> welcome back to the program. Uh, I'm going to largely be quiet now because we have Lauren on the phone, and uh, and I believe Stefan is uh, is going to uh, be largely talking to you. So I will now pass back to Stefan. Welcome to the program, Lauren Latour. Thanks so much. Yeah. Lauren, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing pretty well. Sun's shining, birds are singing. It's a yeah. Friday. Yeah. It's all right. That, all those three you things. You clearly haven't been listening to the first 20 minutes of the program. <laughs> yeah. Don't you know the sun is trying to kill us? Right. Oh, uh, damn. That's actually that's my new that's my new environmental take. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop doing all the other ones and just come out. I'm just gonna have a sign that says you know beware of the sun. Um, Oh, maybe everyone will think I'm a, a sunscreen ad. So maybe you should get do like that. a cartoon sun as like a, a rest, WWF wrestling villain or something like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm designing it while you guys are talking. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, so we're so so we're talking a little bit about about about, uh, about something called fortress conservation, uh, and more specifically about sort of the roots of conservation within the environmental movement and sort of the I would argue that the that sort of the history of conservation still to this day plagues the environmental movement. Uh, which may sound uh, somewhat controversial to our our, our more conservation uh, or more nature friendly, uh, specifically how people understand nature, quote unquote, friendly uh, listeners. But uh, the new st- it comes out of this new study. Uh, there was a United Nations had a special rapporteur uh, on indigenous peoples, uh, Victoria Tali Corpus. Uh, has released a highly reported and highly, a highly critical uh, report that is about the global conservation movement, um, in, and in, in, in they have a pretty pretty interesting and pretty obvious call, which is basically that indigenous peoples and other local communities should have a greater say in in how we do conservation, uh, which is interesting because like you know, the conservation movement in Canada has had uh, or and, and across the world has had you know similar effects than what is being highlighted here. You know, it's interesting. It's a report that's coming out in 2018, but a lot of what they're, they're saying is the history of how Canada has gotten to where it is exists. Um, and so, and so the, it was inter- so the first part is, is it was interesting is a sort of, they identified that 15% of global land service, uh, is considered, uh, protected areas, which is like a pretty significant amount of the land, especially, you know, especially given how much, uh, how much is like, you know, You're saying global land, 
Uh, yeah, so it's it's fifty yeah, percent of global land surface, excluding Ex- Antarctica. Excluding Antarctica. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we don't even give they don't even give us Antarctica on this one, um, and and the, and the goal is to expand that. And the question is how we can expand that further. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, and and it definitely does sort of tie in really really closely to sort of Canadian instances of environmentalism and and sort of conservationism as they've existed for hundreds of years. Um, I'm I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, but uh, as as wonderful as as Parks Canada are and as our protected green areas are, and, and nobody's saying we shouldn't be protecting land, obviously, but um, a lot of those a lot of those spaces were like a lot of Canada were were stolen from indigenous peoples and they were kicked off that land. And in some cases they were, they were maybe promised like, Hey, um, you can, you can continue to, to use this land for your traditional practices. You can continue to hunt and fish and, um, collect your traditional medicines. And then those promises were never upheld. So like in, in, in the case of wood Buffalo, I know I keep talking about wood Buffalo, <laughs> but, um, but yes, but, uh, the, the folks who, who lived on wood Buffalo traditionally were, were sort of were promised that they would be able to continue to hunt wood buffalo every year um, because they had always done so, and and it always sort of it, it it helps maintain an ecological balance within within that ecosystem. And of course, once it was taken over by Parks Canada, they were pushed off the land and were prohibited from carrying out those practices. Um, so yeah, so really, as as we understand conservationism and environmentalism in the West is is deeply rooted in in systems of settler colonialism, and in a lot of cases. Um, sort of like toxic masculinity and misogyny. And this uh, report from from the UN Special Rapporteur it sort of digs into that. It's, it's actually, it's a really fascinating, it's also like visually very interactive. If our listeners want to check it out, um, they can visit corneredbypas.com. And that's where that's where the report is. If they want to dig into it a little bit more, yeah, I want to sort of like get drop a couple numbers in here because it's it a it sort of highlights the just again it, it's the same sort of stuff. It's it's fat, you know like it it just happened here a hundred years before, and now we're just going other places and doing the exact same thing because uh, you know about, they estimated about two hundred and fifty thousand people were forcibly evicted from their homes between nineteen ninety and twenty fourteen. Uh, according to according to one study, and, and this, this this was these were people who were living in these lands, and and they had their houses burnt down. Uh, you know, they were denied access to important sites, and so this is also like these are these are cultural landmarks that they're being forced off of. They're often shot. They're yeah. just shot in the in the forest. Yeah, extrajudicial killings, social conflict, access to justice was being obstructed, and 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 then and then also and then also food sovereignty, uh, because this again this also includes the fact that the number of people who are living this land required the ability to hunt in these in these areas. And and they were that was also removed in part, you know, because of because because the you know quote unquote West decided that it was important to quote pr- to protect this uh, instead of protecting the sort of the people who who have been stewards of this land for you know f- you know for the last you know ten twenty thirty thousand years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, can I? Yes. Yeah, so I'm just going to jump in. Um, yeah. yeah. So so this sort of this idea of fortress conservation is, and, and again, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, but um, it's based in this idea that in the West, our, our concepts and our understanding of sort of environmentalism and, and protecting the land in, inherently mean that humans have to be separated from it. It's the idea that the only way humans know how to interact with the land is in a way that's sort of toxic and destructive and exploitative. And therefore, if we're protecting an ecosystem, humans can't have any part of it. And not only is that super anthropocentric it's 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 othering and continues to to perpetuate this weird notion that humans aren't part of an ecosystem that we're separate that we're somehow above it and 
and and yeah, it, it sort of fails to recognize the idea that indigenous peoples, in in many cases, have a completely different understanding um, of how to interact with with the natural spaces around us. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, anyway. well, and, and and you can see it even in, in how and how the, you know, to go back to sort of our history, how often the the so the people who sort of moved west to, to, to you know quote unquote settle the west mm-hmm. did, manifest destiny, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like totally didn't recognize the forests that were sort of being taken care of and being used in a way to sustain the indigenous peoples, and so instead we're like, what if we did exactly what we did in Europe, which is clear cut and plant crops, and and which 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 then didn't work uh, and, and, and caused great hardships for them because they had not, they'd failed to recognize, they couldn't even see the forest as something that could be producing enough to feed them. Right. They, mm-hmm. they, they had they completely had they did not have the ability to understand that these forests that were being that were being that were being um, protected and, and, and used by by indigenous peoples were, in fact, themselves as effective, if not more effective than what than what the tradition, what they were trying to grow. You know, they were just like, what if we just didn't have all this you know, useless forest, quote unquote, uh, and just grew crops? Yet the forest itself was self, not only self-sustaining, but also sort of was actually providing for the people who lived there. I forget who it was, but there was a British comedian who referred to British history of colonialism as the British going around solving problems people didn't have. Oh, you're not using our currency. Well, we'll fix that. Oh, you're not using our farming practices. We'll fix that. Oh, you're not using our government style. We'll fix that. Oh, you're not using our guns. We'll fix that. Oh, you're taking our land. We'll fix that. Oh, I'm sorry. Did we say that last one? Right. The uh, but yeah, well, and then and, and so and that's and, and what's interesting is that that's a sort of dichotomy of previously uh, of that. It, that continues, right? That continues the idea that humans cannot be a part of this. And then also what's interesting it's highlighted in this is how much w- weirdly we people seem to really focus on the on the quote unquote the, the animals as, as as part of the preservation and while ignoring the set of people who also live there, right? It, it goes back to sort of, you know, Lauren, your point about not seeing humans as part of a natural environment. Because uh, one of these things talks about an Indian case study that focused on tiger reserves. Uh, mm-hmm. Which are like fifty of six hundred and seventeen "quote unquote" protected areas, uh, but capturing seventy percent of the national conservation budget. And so here's, you know, this is because these, you know, these charismatic megafauna, these these large animals, are considered, you know, they're the sort of they're the example of these of the most important thing to protect. Uh, and yet, and yet, that sort of ignores the fact that there's all these other people and all these other things that they, they, you know they 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 pushed people off land to, to create these tiger reserves. They then denied them again access the access. They, could, they, they changed access to hunting. Uh, they shift again, shifting to cultivation agriculture uh, from traditional forest management, which is literally that, which is exactly what happened here in the same sort of way, uh, which didn't work out. You, know, you, ever, you ever wonder why an Oregon Trail kept dying of dysentery? It's because it's because they didn't listen to how they should have been taking care of their forests, uh, and yet that's exactly what we're repeating again all across the world. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, and so, there's these, there's, there's this report is is really quite, quite comprehensive. Uh, and so, so, I'm going to throw it back to you, Lauren. If you got another one, you want to pull out, pull out from here. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess I do. It's, I, yeah. I guess just to bring it back to the idea that that it really does just sort of continue to perpetuate this idea that the only land worth, not not the report, but yeah. that sort of this fortress conservation um, mindset continues to sort of perpetuate this idea that the only spaces worth protecting and the only species worth protecting are the beautiful ones that hold some sort of aesthetic value for us. They're the ones that look really great in pictures or sort of 
stir a sense of awe and amazement within us. There, there's spaces like Jasper and Banff with huge mountains or, or redwood trees or something like that. And it, and it can, yeah, as opposed to this idea that all land has inherent value, all ecosystems and all organisms, no matter how small or, or ugly they might be, play an integral role. Um, and just, and just sort of continues that, that whole sort of nature versus human divide. Well, you you basically just said it, Lauren, but I want to just I want to just circle back to it because and put an underline on it, which is the the corollary there, which is that the the flip side of that too, which is that psychologically speaking, when we say um, you know uh, let's let's simplify, let's talk about the lawn. Hey, I'm treating the lawn. Everyone, stay off the lawn, uh, or whatever. Is that the 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 flip side of that? The psychological flip side of that is that you, there's this there's this I think unconscious, largely unconscious assumption then that you have carte blanche with everything outside of that. Right. That's mm-hmm. the protected area. Therefore, right. here is a human space. And in this human space, it's consequence yeah. free. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I don't exactly. think anyone explicitly thinks that, but it is obviously the the impact. And I think you could very easily like whenever I'm thinking about these sort of dive drivers, well, whenever I'm trying to think about these problems, that's what, why I communicated that way on the show. This is how I think through these problems. You shrink it down to a household. It's not a universal key, but it's a very useful. That's my if that's my tip for the day to the to the listener. Very useful intellectual exercise. Shrink any political situation down to a household. That doesn't give you the answer, but you should always compare your answer to that because I think often it gives a lot of perspective, and and uh, often that's where my perspectives on the show come from. Is how do we simplify this? What would I do if this was me? And then if it's different than what I think the country should do or a government should do or a policy should be, why? Uh, and I think it's a very useful exercise for everyone to do. When I think mm-hmm. it, yeah, and I, I think it, I think what it, it really does is it, it forces you into a scenario in which, you know, everything is still considered uh, like it, it only further emphasizes the, dico- the the separation between, you know, humans and the environment. You know, if, 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 as Lauren mentioned, if all parks are, you know, are just for human consumption. Uh, rather than human life, then that's then those parks are for human consumption via keeping them pristine for again human consumption, and then the rest of the world is for just actually human consumption. Uh, then nothing is not there's no there's no part of it in which that they're connected. Uh, but before we before we sort of before before we end, I just want to go to the four things that this report sort of says we need to start doing. Because uh, you know, let's end on a slightly a note that slightly says we did like, promise, Stefan. Yeah, exactly. We're moving upwards a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the four things it says we need to do is one we need to create a global monitoring and uh, grievance mechanism uh, so actually sort of find a way to, to to report some of these difficulties and how we might get better at it uh, we need to establish a national quote uh, accountability and reparation mechanisms uh, and so that would be sort of working together to, to to ensure that we're giving some of this land back and I think when you talk about truth and reconciliation here in Canada I think some conversation has to exist in how we actually give land back to indigenous folks especially within you know like like the the fact that we sort of go on and on about how great our park system is uh, is in it yet the, we literally force people off that land and are now just telling everyone how great this land is 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 a part of this problem. Um, three is to ensure the UN Declaration of, of Rights uh, in indigenous rights of indigenous peoples uh, is fully integrated in into all future conservation and climate change mitigation measures. Um, I would say also passed, but I guess I guess this UN report is a little 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 unsure if that they're going to pull that one off. So just future is what they're going for. 
Uh, and then four is to spend more on conservation finance. Uh, more conservation finance on, quote, community-run conservation initiatives uh, based on an emerging suite of approaches such as co-management, indigenous-managed protected areas, and indigenous territorial governance. Uh, And so this is, this really, what's interesting about this is that a lot of these suggestions are quite similar in, 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 in type to a lot of the other suggestions to make the world a better place other ways, which is listen to the people on the ground they know what they're talking about uh, and and stop trying with a sort of like, again, colonial mindset that coming in and, and, and dealing with it. Um, and so, but as we, as we wrap up, I want to give, I want to give you Lauren the last word. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, I guess just uh, quickly for listeners, if, if they want to learn more about sort of the Canadian context of this, like obviously check out that amazing report. Um, but then sort of, keep in mind that over this next year uh, leading up to 2020, I think Canada is trying to bump up its protected areas from currently it sits at about 10% and they want it to be at 17% of terrestrial spaces and and 10% of of marine spaces um, protected. So, so in the next few years, in the next few months, even we're going to be seeing a lot, a lot of different launches from uh, environment and climate change, Canada and parks, Canada um, designating new, new protected areas. And it's really important to be, looking at those things, not only because like awesome, sometimes it's, it's, it's really great that they're protecting new spaces, but also to sort of monitor that and make sure that when these new protected spaces are carved out, that indigenous um, rights are being, are being kept in mind and that those perspectives are being honored and taken into account. Um, so yeah. So, so if people want to learn more about that, uh, Google pathway target one Canada, like, protected areas targets and um and specifically looking at indigenous protected and conserved areas um yeah, that's sort of the Canadian context right now. That's awesome. Yeah, because I was going to say that, that that make sure that it's not that we're just saying a bunch of places that already that indigenous can no longer go. Like I'm concerned that they're sort of like you know forget actually protecting land that is currently being abused by all the you know by our by our industrial system. Let's just take more land from indigenous folks and call it protected. Uh, so mm-hmm. Let's 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 and hope Trudeau that doesn't give you a pass on pipelines. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Someone had to say it. I was yeah. trying to wait for yeah. the people. Yeah, that's fair. Well, a couple different pieces. Yeah, well, man, there's a whole. If you want to, there's a fascinating story going on right now in BC as well. I believe it's in BC uh, about uh, Indigenous people uh, blocking air, blocking part of the pipeline on uh, on park land, uh, which is which they were then arrested for trespassing on their own territory, uh, which is again a bonkers story, which we'll we'll get to uh, probably in the future. Uh, but uh, thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, please do everyone look at look into sort of keep keep an, keep an eye on where our parks are uh, and know that the conservation is not is not always what it's cracked out to be. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much, Lauren, uh, who I may now call our our bison correspondent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but thanks so much, and uh, also go to our music break, Megan. What do we got? We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners internationally and possibly into space, who knows, as well as our uh, most appreciated podcast listeners uh, for bias reasons. <laughs> uh, you can find that at greenmajority.ca. If you find that we talk too fast, I know uh, we get emails all the time. We do try uh, and do our best. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> but the best second uh, place to that is to get the podcast. You can just re-listen to stuff that you missed. <laughs> Uh, you can do that at greenmajority.ca. Uh, thank you so much to Dave, who's been doing a lot of the heavy lifting on that, and Megan. Uh, it had been me for a large time, and uh, Dave, you're doing a great job. Thanks for that. Uh, so thanks to Dave. Check out the website for all that information, as well as notes on these stories. Dave. Mm. 
Well, for those who uh, aren't, haven't the benefit of uh, seeing the visual, but Sarah and Kester is dressed very well today. And uh, <laughs> they still have on their rose-colored glasses, mm. which is why we're turning... They're very rose. Literally wearing rose-colored glasses. <laughs> and we're turning to some good news here. And I will not be taking them off. <laughs> <laughs> the Republic of Ireland will become the first country on Earth to sell off all of its fossil fuel investments worth 300 million euros. Thomas Pringle, the independent parliamentarian who introduced the bill, had this to say about it. Quote, The movement is highlighting the need to stop investing in the expansion of a global industry which must be brought into managed decline if catastrophic climate change is to be averted. Ireland is divesting and sending a clear message that the Irish public and the international community are ready to think and act beyond narrow short-term vested interests. Ireland will officially be divesting from 150 fossil fuel companies, but apparently may continue to invest in such companies if that investment helps other decarbonization efforts. Uh, Jerry Liston of the Global Legal Action Network, who drafted the bill, said, quote, Governments will not meet their obligations under the Paris Agreement on Climate Change if they continue to financially sustain the fossil fuel industry. Countries the world over must now urgently follow Ireland's lead and divest from fossil fuels. The divestment is expected to complete within five years. Hey, Trudeau, this is what leadership looks like. Oh! <laughs> The uh, that's that's all I gotta say. That this is this is what leadership actually looks he like. He should is, call them and and let them know that no c- country on earth would possibly divest from fossil fuels. Yeah, maybe he can sell insane. them a pipeline. Maybe yeah. Ireland will buy Kinder Morgan. Maybe that's they, a solution. They hadn't mm. heard of pipelines. Right, that's right. the problem. That's with the Ireland. problem. Uh, <laughs> so will they now own a pipeline? They should consider selling it to uh, someone. To call Ireland <laughs> and let them know about pipelines, everyone. That's yeah. that's important now. Yeah. They weren't told. Yeah. Uh, but no, seriously, this is this is good news. This is like I believe they're n- n- one of the v- very first. I don't. I, th- I believe they're not the first. I'm pretty sure Costa Rica was the first. Or, you know or that thing about like leapfrogging, where like you know sometimes like a, the idea of like technology leapfrog, right? Where yeah. a, com- a country is so far behind, but then they they modernize very very quickly, and so the, they might skip over technologies. Yeah. Ireland's like uh, uh, abortion, gay marriage, uh, <laughs> just nearly separated. <laughs> like they're like politically like out of nowhere here. Right. And you know it's because of the aging population largely. Mm. Uh, uh, Ireland is getting younger very quickly, but right. uh, and and less and less of their. Uh, there was a long period of time where a lot of young people were basically just fleeing Ireland, like and and we experienced that here in Toronto as as one of the biggest ports of mm. ingress. A uh, lot of uh, people from Scotland and Ireland uh, uh, coming over here. Um, uh, but it's very young over there, and you're getting a lot of like out of nowhere from a very mm. conservative, politically conservative country. A lot of very progressive sounding things, at least. I'm not plugged into uh, right. Ireland politics, but uh, it seems good. Well, you know, no one told them about pipelines, so that there was you, well, that, like go. that was yeah. part of the problem. Right. Um, no, <laughs> you're telling me Ireland is not the first country to sell off all their fossil fuel assets. Uh, well, uh, I believe at least not the first one to commit. Uh, okay. I'm quite. I I, I I feel like quite certainly that Costa Rica was uh, there, was involved in fossil fuelism as well. Uh, however, uh, however, they may have been. They may have done it. They may have actually personally become fossil free uh, because they are re- been running on renewable energy for the last. They simply were not invested in the first place. It, right. is, yeah, they may. They may have. Yeah, have a slightly right. different. And like Iceland is like already seventy percent on geothermal power and stuff mm. like that. Yeah, so yeah. Like there's a bunch of like nuances where like depending on how you define it, there's been a few firsts in this area. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. We don't need to qualify. Yeah. But like, all, yes, but like what your country can divest from fossil fuels while still burning them because you're not sort of investing Precisely. in the future, but you're still burning yeah. them. Precisely. In which way that Costa Rica is currently not burning so, any fossil so fuels. So arguably in the way this is most important is they're the most similar economy to ours to mm. commit to divesting fossil fuels. Yes. Maybe that might mm. be a way to put it. Or, yeah. or among the more 
similar Advanced to ours. Western the, white economy. Yeah, they're more similar to our economy than other ones who have been gone down a similar path. Uh, yeah. Anyway, unequivocally good news. Move yes, on. let's go. Okay, so an intense heat wave in Britain saw the UK's solar generation surpass its gas output to briefly become the top source of power in the country. Solar is not being pursued as vigorously in the UK as it has in the past, as government subsidies have been slashed, but some companies believe technological advances and large-scale farming will allow new solar capacity to come online in spite of government cuts. Solar expert Alistair Buckley of the University of Sheffield said, quote, This marks the start of subsidy-free solar being economically viable, and I genuinely believe we'll see bigger changes to the electricity sector in the next 10 years than we've seen in the past 10. Yeah, and this is an example of, again, we've seen the prices of solar energy continually decrease. And the fact, if the UK can pull off solar, like, this is literally a place that is only known for being rained on all the time. Uh, and yet you're seeing that even they're getting close to price parity there. Uh, you sort of wonder what opportunities are being missed in Arizona uh, as, as sort of Trump fights the solar and, uh, like, literally Trump, like, slowly tries to gut the solar energy industry. In, 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 in Scum, uh, Scotland is literally famous for having all four seasons in one day. That's <laughs> like Scotland's thing. Yeah, yeah. So, to have all four seasons in one day. Yeah, so I if experienced that. I was there for three weeks and it literally happened like four times. <laughs> and, and that's the type of thing. That's the type of thing that like when, when people say, you know, renewable energy doesn't deal with inclement weather. Well, if if the UK can pull off uh, can pull off solar. Uh, in the middle of Brexit, I might have. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, then I think then I think the we're slowly seeing the answers, the reasons why these things don't work uh, decrease. However, there are other interesting energies that we have, that we, we, that we are seeing, especially being used in the UK. Uh, and one of them is tidal energy, which our next story is. I want to get to that before we uh, end. So yes, The Guardian is reporting that harnessing the power of the moon through underwater generators that take advantage of the changing tides is becoming more and more viable through a series of innovative gadgety devices. The schemes include a diverse range of mechanisms, whether horizontal like wind, like wind turbines, vertical like a merry-go-round, or placed in a funnel or under the wing of a tethered kite that flies in a figure eight through the tidal stream. Canada's own Bay of Fundy is already home to a tidal generating machine made of 16-meter hoops with blades pointing inward like the mouth of a massive lamprey fish. Tidal energy may supply a more predictable source of energy than solar or wind, since the moon is always traveling around the Earth in the same cycle. Ocean energy is being tapped in other ways as well, including the harnessing of the power of waves, to which the main obstacle so far has been creating a machine that can withstand the constant beat of the crashing water. Wave devices include a machine that forces the wave up through a tube like a blowhole, underwater paddles pushed back and forth, and pogo stick-like buoys that rise and fall with the moving water creating a pumping action. The European Commissioner for Environment said, quote, it is a groundbreaking industry with plenty of potential for new jobs and economic value. In, and in a world facing the devastating specter of climate change, it also helps to supply homegrown energy while drastically cutting our greenhouse gas emissions. <clears throat> Some countries will be looking to hop on that tidal bandwagon early, as Denmark has already shown the value of acting first when they took hold of the wind turbine manufacturing industry long before many other nations were catching on. Former director of renewable energy in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, uh, sorry, in Nova Scotia, Bruce Cameron, said, quote, everything, everyone is trying to be the next Denmark, but for another technology. 
Title developers are now caught between testing and production, as many governments are moving to support offshore wind generation, which has become much cheaper over the past year. Canada is offering a feed-in tariff for title development, and France will be doing something similar. And other ocean technologies that can provide a constant source of power for, by instance, taking advantage of ocean temperature stratification between the surface and the depths are also looking more and more competitive and could potentially replace diesel in certain smaller communities. Uh, so, uh, uh, to, re- to, re- to, re- to reuse my joke, uh, Doug Ford, this is what uh, leadership looks like. Uh, in that, it clearly, it, like, Ontario was doing a decent job trying to position itself as the next Denmark for some other technologies, uh, in regards to renewable energy and things like that. Uh, and then you did ruined everything. But anyways, uh, how did he ruin our renewable energy investment? Well, he cut every green energy by cutting the all the investments towards, say, green energy, uh, mm-hmm. the Green Ontario Act, and all the sort of stuff like that. Where or incentives or, for or, that or incentives. Oh, well, and also and also contracts, right? You right. know, there were full on contracts that were signed that, that were. And these are multi year in, incentives so. too. So it's not a matter of like, hey, if you start your business today, we'll give you fifty bucks, right? Like when CIBC has those. Uh, or a bank has those like move your savings account to us today and we'll give you $150. That's not that's not what these are. These are things around which you will start and base your business, right? So yeah. solar companies started because they built their business model around providing a service based on a certain price that was guaranteed by the government. Uh, they didn't do it because of a one-time thing. They did it because it was an ongoing program that was designed to support them starting their business. So when you take that away, you take away the business. Like it, it would be like if you just went to any company, basically maybe short of Rogers, like because mm-hmm. I'm sure their margins are high enough. But like most companies, and you said we're just going to take, a, we're going to add twenty percent to your costs. Now go do business. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them shut down immediately. Mm-hmm. There are very few businesses that could that could manage that sort of thing. That's exactly what we're seeing with tariffs right now. So what the hoopla about international tariffs right now and the damage that Trump is doing to the American economy, their own economy and their own people by these stupid tariffs are identical, interchangeable, and unrecognizably different from what Doug Ford just did to the renewable energy sector. Mm-hmm. Took a bunch of functioning, big, functioning businesses that were all doing things that are good for our economy, good for the environment, and good for Ontario, and threw them under the bus. Yeah, well, it's, it's that simple. It's, it's, on, on nothing more than ideological grounds. There was no financial reason for it whatsoever. It, it, yeah, it, these were sector building sort of work uh, that was sort of that you sort of lose when this happens. But I just want to get back to the, the idea of tidal energy because I think the, the tidal energy is fascinating uh, because it's one of those things in which is quite difficult, but when done, you, you do get that consistent and very planned, uh, you know when you'll be getting the, the, the energy and not, which is something that most other uh, most other renewable energy sources are not able to consistently provide, which is expected times to get energy, um, and and then and then the way you the way to use these sort of things, especially in, in sort of smaller communities, if they are able to sort of leverage those types of things as well, you are really able to then um, to then get off like. As we're experiencing in, in, in Ontario before, you know, before Doug Ford, one of the difficulties that was being had by the by the by the provincial government when they were considering trying to further de um, to, to decarbonize their energy grid was that they had sort of done a lot of the easy things, but then the harder parts were the sort of more remote communities or the diesel generated places uh, or or or, or stuff, stuff like that. And tidal energy provides at least an opportunity to maybe ha- to, to help those those remote communities that are on the coastline. Uh, that if you're able to sort of invest in some of these things in these small places, you'd be able to sort of deal with some of these different, more diesel-generated ones, which are like the hard part of finding it, really. Yeah. I'm sorry. So we, we have two minutes left, and I've been yeah. literally waiting the whole show to make a comment about this story. All right. So I have to do it. <laughs> 
Ocean, this is, I'm rereading Dave's notes. This is a line Dave already read. We're going to read it again. Ocean energy is being tapped in other ways as well, such as harnessing the power of turning waves, to which the main obstacle so far has been creating a machine that can withstand the beating of crushing water. <laughs> Let me rephrase that in plain English. The main problem with developing ocean energy is that there's too much energy. <laughs> <laughs> it's too powerful. Physical force is the energy they're capturing. The main problem has been there's too much of it. <laughs> And more and more countries similar to ours are going fossil free. Uh, who exactly are we selling these pipeline oils to? Uh, renewable energy prices are now to the point that it doesn't even matter that their subsidies have been taken away because the technology is getting so advanced that it's already cheaper than fossil fuels. But good thing we invested into 20 to 40 to 50 year pipeline for $6 billion. Well played. $4.5 billion. I'm sorry, I was sitting on that the whole show. Yeah. Too much energy is the main problem of renewable energy. That's it for the Green Majority this week. Hope you had a good one. Take care and stay breezy.